Welcome friends, welcome on the barricade. This is Maria Cernat and as usual, we have with us Boyan Stanislavski, the co-host of our show. We also invited a very special guest, renowned journalist and filmmaker, Paul Jay. He agreed to come to our show to talk initially about pandemics, but the events, the extraordinary events taking place in Washington on January 6th, when uh, Trump supporters just stormed the Capitol building, made us change our perspective. And the first part of our show will be dedicated to the analysis on what happened on January 6th. I would kindly ask you, Paul, to give us a historical and broader perspective on the events for us to understand what led to these extraordinary things taking place there. You have uh, industrialization and you have a need for enormous amounts of capital to build great big factories of, uh, with thousands of workers and thousands of machines. Uh, banking takes on a different kind of role, a, a more dominant role. And, and this reached its peak, uh, you could say its first peak in the 1920s, when everybody's encouraged to buy stocks, the banks are selling stocks, the banks are loaning money for people to buy stocks. You could, you know, you could buy $100 a stock with a dollar down and borrow the other $99. So by 1929, 1930, it goes completely out of whack. And you have, it's one of the great triggers of the uh, Great Depression of 1929, 1930. So uh, this, this is part of the global crisis of capitalism throughout the 1930s. And capitalism really has two ways to go uh, towards fascism, and or towards eventually, uh, you know, by 1932. And so you have in the United States what Roosevelt did, uh, the New Deal, and you have a compromise between the elites and the working class. So either a vicious suppression of workers, which is what most of Europe supported, and a big fight in the United States over whether to take go the route of fascism, as it was in Europe, or what FDR was pushing, which is a, that the United States could afford and should uh, have concessions and it's called the New Deal. And that's where the United States went. So the, the, these kinds of pro-fascist forces have been in the US for a long time. Uh, I was just saying before we got on camera, you really in many ways can trace this right back to the American Civil War, uh, where the uh, Confederacy fights to defend system of slavery. Uh, one of the critical parts of, of the Civil War uh, is that white workers, uh, poor white workers, poor white farmers go and join the army and fight for the Confederacy against the North in defense of slavery. Even though these poor white workers economically uh, benefited very little from slavery, but the uh, White the ideology of white supremacy was to give these white workers the feeling, well, at least we're not black, you know, at least we're not slaves, which was something not to be a slave. Although in truth, they probably, in terms of their real economic interest, had more in common 
with the slaves than, than they did with uh, the slave owners. But this ideology that, that of, of a section of the white working class feeling uh, at least superior to blacks gave them something. And, and this continues to this day among sections of the working class. Sections, not the whole, but definitely sections. So the New Deal gives uh, concessions to the uh, working class. Uh, you have a big employment program that employs uh, almost 9 million people. Uh, you know, later, Social Security develops. Uh, you, you have a lot of uh, very progressive social programs and so on. Uh, after World War II, there's a concerted effort by the leadership of both parties, the Republicans certainly, but also sections of the Democratic Party, to start undoing the New Deal. And to, as the United States is the supreme power in the world, there's a lot of wealth to go around. And the American elites don't mind sharing some of that wealth with some of the higher levels of the working class. By higher levels, I mean unionized, workers in key sectors like transportation or the auto industry. Um, and so those workers do pretty well. I know when I was a kid, it was if, if someone had a job in the auto industry, they probably had a cottage. Uh, the family probably had two cars. The kids of the family were guaranteed to be able to afford to go to university. And, and that's a whole section of the American working class does really well. Uh, now, the majority were not doing really well, and I'm talking the white working class. Of course, the black working class and, and Latino and workers of color, very few of them shared in this kind of boom after the war. After the war. Some did. I mean, it's not like you didn't have any black workers working in the auto industry or some of these other sectors, but it was greatly the minority. Uh, but, but, but there was enough white workers that did pretty well. And that was the vision of America, This what they call the middle class. I don't know why they call it the middle class, because they don't like using the words working class, because it sounds socialist or communist or something. But, but the, the, the working class, a stratum did really well. So jumping ahead, uh, you start to get in the 1970s, uh, digitization, computerization, uh, the digital revolution between 1970s moving into 1980s it does something very very important in my mind it takes globalization to a whole nother level so now you can have production in china and other low-wage countries coordinated with the retail sales in the united states in a way that would have been unimaginable before i mean you can go to walmart and buy a tube of toothpaste and in China or Vietnam, they know instantly, okay, we're going to make another tube of toothpaste. I, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying it. But the global supply chain became such that American workers lost their leverage, and especially that upper strata. It coincided with the destruction of the steel industry. Uh, it got cheaper to move heavy industry to a large extent, not just to China, to Mexico and other places. So it's a very objective development of capitalism starts to weaken the power of the working class in relationship to the American elites. And who, so this globalization, which, which doesn't just affect the United States, this is happening in Canada, it's happening in Europe, 
work, workers, again, the upper stratum of workers, but enough, start to lose that privileges they were gaining uh, post-World War II. And also the other big factor was the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, the, the fear of socialism, the fear of the Soviet Union inspiring workers to want socialism, and especially in the days after World War II, was enormous. Uh, you know, in the United States, they have McCarthyism. Uh, they have the House of Un-American Activities Committee to purge, uh, you know, communists, socialists, leftists out of the unions, which was the real target was the unions. You know, people focus on Hollywood and the Hollywood 10. But and yes, they wanted to get the left out of the Hollywood, no doubt, because the left was very strong in Hollywood right, in the, the day, during World War II and after. Uh, and in 1946, the United States had more strikes, worker strikes in 1946 than ever in history before or after. Because a lot of soldiers came back from the war and they said, we, we came to Europe to fight for democracy. Well, now we're home. We want some ourselves. <laughs> and they started demanding economic rights, including black workers who, who also fought and said, now we're coming back. You know, you're not going to treat us like slaves anymore. So 1946 was a, a, a year of militancy of the American working class. And the response of the American elites was uh, very harsh labor laws um, and ideologically, politically, this McCarthyism as it's come to be known, although McCarthy was just one part of it, where they literally purge whole sections of American society of the left, they've just fired people. People lose their jobs in Hollywood. Uh, I actually, my father was uh, worked in a left-wing union, and he was purged in Canada, which was not, uh, they, this wasn't going on in Canada as badly as the United States. But this, the Cold War, this side of the Cold War, which was to crush dissent in the United States, then the other piece of the Cold War, and you can't separate all this, so I, I may feel like I'm going all over the place, but it's, it's very connected, which is after World War II, the aerospace industry in the United States that had grown to enormous proportions, and this includes other parts of industry as well. Uh, what are they gonna do now? The war is over. Where's, what's the need? for keeping this uh, enormous infrastructure of military production. There was a great need for an existential threat. And that threat is the Soviet Union. Uh, I, I've been, I'm doing some work now with Daniel Ellsberg, who's the whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers. And he actually worked for Rand Corporation uh, mm. as a nuclear war planner. He was planning nuclear war. In fact, he, in 1959-60, wrote the nuclear war plan for the United States when he was like 31 years old. And then he started to find out that the threat of the Soviet Union, at least as an external global military threat, I'm not talking domestically here, was a fraud. Uh, and uh, Kennedy in 1959-60 he runs for president. One of his big planks is the missile gap. The Soviet Union has way more ICBMs in the United States. And this general, Curtis LeMay, who was head of STRATCOM, and he's the guy who dropped nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and firebombed most of Japan. 
during the war. Uh, he he still had abstract arm, and he says that the Soviet Union has 1,000 ICBMs. This is about 1960, when the United States only has 200. And they call it the missile gap. And there has to be this massive increase in nuclear war production, uh, weapons production, and arms, and so on. Anyway, Ellsberg, who works in the Pentagon as an advisor, he finds out that the real number of Soviet ICBMs at that point was four, four, not a thousand. It was a crop of, it was total bullshit. Uh, this is part of a narrative, which is that this existential threat of the Soviet Union, and, and I know when I grew up as a kid, you know, I don't know, we used to have to hide under our desks for drills because they're going to drop bombs in our heads. And supposedly, if you got under your school desk, that's going to save you. But there was a hysteria, and it, it served two purposes. One, it justified this massive military expansion. And two, it justified the crushing of the left socialist communist progressives in North America. So uh, that, that helps shape much of the upbringing, the thinking of also the American working class. So now you've got this kind of combination, Cold War ideology and the remnants, the hangover of this uh, right supremacy. Uh, at least I, I may be not doing all that well, but at least I'm white. Uh, and and whatever I do have, these people, these blacks are going to come try to take away from me. And yeah, course, sorry, go ahead. That that's so 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 sad, you know, because they are playing with this type of getting people down the child's throats. I mean, having the working class fight against uh, black Latinos and people of color. While the elites, as Cornell West said so nicely, <laughs> that the elites are doing their game all the way. Now, for those of you who tune in later, we are joined here by Paul J, uh, the producer, host of the Analysis.News, and Boyan Stanislavski. And I am now going to turn to Boyan Stanislavski to ask his question. I asked Paul to give us some sort of political, economic, and historical perspective that led to the terrible, horrifying uh, events that took place uh, well, in uh, Washington on January 6th. Can I, can I just add a little piece to this? Please, just, to, please. just to quickly get us up to date here. So when you reach this period of the 70s into the 80s, globalization, uh, the, the real weakening of the working class, uh, economic crisis, uh, as we head into the 1980 election, the real roots of Trumpism is Reaganism. It's the election of President Reagan that brings in all the, these threads together. It's Reagan that says government's not the solution to the problems. Government is the problem. This idea of being anti-government. Uh, the racism, the, they call it dog whistle. They use this phrase of states' rights as if somehow it was a constitutional question, when really it was the right of states to suppress blacks and black voters. Uh, so this combination of racism, white supremacy, uh, anti, and a great uh, anti-socialist, anti-left rhetoric, this is all Reagan. 
And in fact, uh, if you look at the Reagan campaign, and in fact, Showtime, I'm not sure it's available in Europe. In the United States, there's a series called The Reagans, a four-part series, which depicts this very well. The Trump campaign is a straight carbon copy of the Reagan campaign in almost every respect, except instead of this smiling Reagan, you got this angry Trump. But everything else is more or less the same. So the, the movement that leads to what happened on January 6th, uh, the, this kind of crazy, uh, disaffected, you, can, you used earlier this term lumpen or white worker, uh movement it's its roots are reaganism and its roots are the development of of capitalism as a very parasitical uh form of economy where workers are losing the, the little rights that they had so and and, and I, I i can't underestimate the way racism is a thread throughout all of this and the way people are manipulated sorry go go ahead so I'm going to turn to, to Boyan to ask his uh, question now. All right, thank you. Uh, well, Paul, I, I, I want to say thank you to you uh, as well, because uh, this was a very interesting uh, kind of historical perspective. And I think it's important to, uh, you know, to remind people that history doesn't start anew every day, which is what, for example, the mainstream media would like us to think, or the majority of the so-called public opinion, uh, and that there is this as I said, historical continuum to all of it, uh, to uh, to all of those events, uh, you know, pathological as they could be, like on uh, January sixth uh, in Washington, uh, and uh, you know, I'd like to add a little bit more of a description. Uh, I'd like to ask you for a bit more of a description of the current situation. I mean, not regardless of the historical facts, of course, but. Uh, I'd like the Eastern European viewer to understand better what actually happened in the United States, because you know, for us in Eastern Europe, these things, the, these sort of uh, scenic depictions, okay, of uh, political life, as you experienced that on uh, January 6th, is not something entirely new. It's embarrassing, it's violent, it's dangerous, uh, and it normally brings a lot of bad things. And it has a name, uh, it's called color, revolutions. And, uh, you know, the United States government has been instigating that kind of political process, okay, uh, pretty much everywhere around the world, from Ukraine to Venezuela to, uh, you know, Hong Kong. Okay. So uh, for us, it was like, wow, it, it was, it, it was some sort of cognitive dissonance. Okay, this was, this was happening all around here, okay, in Eastern Europe. And suddenly we see this, uh, this sort of thing happening right there at the center of, of the, uh, I don't know, the belly of the beast, okay? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I got to say that uh, we, for us, for the Eastern Europeans, it was not, we were, we were shocked by that, but we were also shocked by the reaction of the, uh, of the elites, like everybody going, you know, uh, sort of hyperventilating on how, oh, democracy in peril, everything's terrible, Cap uh, the capital stormed by, you know, uh, some uh, Nazis or racists or all, all kinds of despicable people. And, you know, uh, Trump instigating a coup and, 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 you know, and, and I was, you know, the more I listened to that, the more I was like, come on, like, give me a break, you know, democracy in peril, like, we, we, you know, we really have this kind of things all around all the time. Well, maybe not all the time, but on a regular basis, you know, I, I come from Bulgaria and this is where, uh, you know, according to at least historical uh, record, uh, that's where the first, first color, 
color revolution happened in 1997 okay and then there's there is this uh, okay historical archive which is full of color revolutions uh, in Eastern Europe, and you know I want to uh, I want to quote from your uh, kind of commentary analysis that you published on your website that I read with great interest uh, on the on the very events on the sixth, uh, and there's one paragraph that that is particularly uh, particularly interesting for me because you say the following you write the following. The images of the storming of Congress was a manipulated piece of theater that pulled off the real coup that almost everyone wanted. That is the end of Trump. And now my first question is, uh, you know, if this is a provocation, really, then uh, why? I mean, are they completely out of their minds? Uh, in a way, this guy is almost out why actually strengthening him? Why validating him in the very last moment? All these actions, okay, all this hype about how terrible his followers are, how they are domestic terrorists, how they are violent, how they are a mob, how this is all, you know, so terrible, as I said, democracy in peril and all these phrases, right? Uh, that, you know, there's going to be so much of martyrdom now, okay, built on this. And then when you add uh, the kind of uh, taking away his uh, Twitter account and, and other social media accounts, apparently, then, you know, like, of course, I'm not against banning, uh, not necessarily against banning, you know, uh, kind of violent hate speech and stuff like that, uh, although I realize it's disputable in terms of, you know, the social media censorship and all the rest of it. But what I want to say is that, you know, I like Trump the way, I mean, I don't like Trump in general, okay? I don't want to come through as a Trump supporter or something like that. But I like Trump the way he was in plain sight on, on you know, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, so that you can follow actually what's happening with him and around him and all the rest of it. Now, the next Trump that is coming, he's not coming on Twitter. He's not coming from Twitter or Facebook or, or, or you know, all these platforms that we're so used to. He's coming from some hidden forums of, you know, conspiratorial theorists uh, that are, uh, you know, not going to be detectable, okay, for anyone in the public opinion. Plus, you know, you're inflicting an extra wound, in my opinion, on the notion of public communication, because, you know, people don't trust anything anymore, in which, you know, appears in the media, in the public sphere in general, that comes from official factors. Now it's going to be even worse. So what's happening is, you know, a terrible destruction, okay, of the public discourse, public debate, to an extent that it won't be even possible soon. So what do you think? Well, there's two really big questions there. The social media stuff, but the first is what happened. Mm -hmm. So let me try to start with the first. Obviously, we don't know everything, and we're trying to piece together the dots here. It may turn out, and there's certainly some evidence of this, that I, in the end, what we'll call this is a coup within a coup. Uh, it looks like there is evidence that Trump was attempting to get the military to intervene and on his behalf. And that the idea of sending a crowd to the Congress perhaps 
was meant to trigger a series of events that would justify some kind of martial law with the military playing ball and with Trump, obviously, as the commander in chief. Sorry, can I just ask one additional question here, just to make it clear? Are you saying that there is evidence, or there are rumors at least, that Trump well, is firing with the military to uh, to no, 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 the there's evidence, no. There's evidence that well, here's the evidence. A few days ago, ten former secretaries of defense sent an extraordinary letter, or published the letter, I guess, in the press, calling on the military not to get involved now that's a public letter this is not some secret conspiracy 10 former secretaries of defense from both parties now why send such a letter unless they thought there was something happening uh, what it seems like then assuming that trump reached out to the military it looks like he was rebuffed that the military did not go along with this. Um, I don't know, you know, there's some individuals at some higher levels of the military that are very pro-Trumpian, um, that are very, uh, that are in fact right-wing evangelicals, uh, right, the right-wing evangelical organization <laughs> movement has actually infiltrated not just at the lower levels of the American Armed Forces, but at very senior levels of the American Armed Forces. I've done some stories about this. But but it looks pretty clear that Billy, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was not going to play ball with Trump. And, and perhaps the majority or all of the senior command were not going to play ball with Trump. So it's not that there's any evidence that there was a conspiracy in the sense that the military was willing to do this, there's some evidence that Trump was trying to get the military to do this. Otherwise, why do 10 secretaries of defense send this letter? So I think what happens is maybe in, in Trump's crazy schemes, uh, he's able to persuade the authorities in Georgia to reverse the vote and declare fraud. He's able to get the military to be on standby. Uh, they expect way more people to show up in D.C., they being Trump and his allies, including people like Steve Bannon, who, who called uh, he, just before the November 3rd election. Steve Bannon uh, says the war begins on November 3rd when they steal the election. That was prior to the election. Bannon said this because they knew all this was going to unfold. Uh, they not only expected much, much bigger crowds in D.C., I think pretty clear from the social media and the way Bannon's been talking. They expected almost something like a national uh, series of protests and demonstrations and craziness everywhere. A little bit happened in other cities, but very little. The crowds in D.C., I can't get a decent number anywhere. I've been looking for a real crowd estimation. It may be, and this is just going on TV images and a little bit, maybe it's 20, 30,000 people, 40,000 I, I, I certainly cannot say that with any certainty, but they thought it would be a million. So if you imagine if they were able to get the military to play ball, if they got Georgia to undo the results and the million people show up and then they storm Congress, maybe that's what Trump had in mind. I think by January 6th that it all collapsed.
the military did not play ball. In fact, there's evidence the military offered the Capitol Hill police uh, National Guard support, but we're told they didn't want it. I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. Why didn't they want it? Uh, the D.C. police wanted to beef up security. It was obvious that there was a plan to send these uh, protesters into Congress. It was all over social media. Uh, instead of preparing for that, uh, what did they do? They don't even set up a real perimeter around the buildings, which is normal security protocol. You don't defend the doors, wooden doors. You set up barricades, to use the name of your show, all over around the buildings, and you defend those barricades. You don't let people get anywhere near the buildings, and that's standard operating procedure. So not to do that takes a decision not to do that. Otherwise, you do it. So Trump goes along with the playbook anyway. Now, I think that the real tell here, you know, in poker, when someone is bluffing or is going to do something, it's called a tell. You can, they wink their eye or they do something. I don't know. The tell here about what was going on is that before the events where the buildings get stormed, that, that day, Lindsey Graham, Mike McConnell, the senator, the, the you know, leading right-wing hawk senator who's been this massive Trump supporter all this time, uh, Mitch McConnell, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, and Mike Pence, vice president, they announced they're not going to support Trump in the, in the Senate in reversing the certification of Joe Biden. Even though there's a hundred members of the House, I, for your audience, I, I, I assume people know there's the House and the Senate. Well, the Senate is considered the more senior body. Honestly, the Senate is a completely undemocratic institution. It shouldn't exist. You know, every state gets two members regardless of size. So, you know, something the size of Delaware gets the same senators as California. I and mean, it's craziness. But that's how it is. So these three guys who have been the biggest cheerleaders and supporters of Trump bail on Trump. Why? Well, I think at, by this point, one, they've seen the letter from the secretaries of defense. They know whatever Trump has in mind is falling apart. They blame him for losing the two Senate races in Georgia. Trumpism, the Trump, I shouldn't say Trumpism, Trump is unraveling. He's going mad. They can see he's literally, I mean, he's been pretty mad the whole damn time. And they've been feeding that nar narcissistic megalomania for four years because everybody, by everybody meaning, first and foremost, Wall Street, the military industrial complex, the evangelical, right-wing evangelical leaders got everything they wanted out of Trump. They got the Supreme Court they wanted. They got the military budget they wanted. Uh, Wall Street got the deregulation they wanted. Uh, the guy, uh, Larry Fink, who's the head of BlackRock, which is the largest asset management company in the world, something like $7 trillion. It's really the power of Wall Street now. Larry Fink, who actually supports the Democrats, uh, he said once that with Trump, we got our entire bucket list checked off. Everything they wanted from a president, Trump did. 
So even though they knew he was descending into madness, utter delusional, it didn't matter because he did what they, they just, he handed over the keys to the treasury, the piggy bank, and they got what they wanted. So, but in these final days, this is what I think happens. You know, some of this I can't definitively prove, but I'll give you, I'll tell you the things that I know are factually verifiable. I think what happens is Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, and Mike Pence, who, excuse me, have been eating Trump's shit for four years. Again, excuse me, bending over and showing their backsides to Trump for four years and hate his guts, but have to keep playing ball because these millions of people that voted for Trump, Trump threatens to primary these guys and, and remove them, you know, throw them from the Republican Party practically. They live in terror of Trump's power. But the morning of January 6th, they see an opportunity to bring the guy down. And that is when they see the crowds are not big enough, when the military is not playing ball. It's time to bring this guy down once and for all. Okay, but, but uh, I'm sorry, Paul. Again, one additional question, just uh, for our viewers to get, and for myself actually as well, to uh, make sure that I, you know, I, I follow and I understand. It's okay, okay. I, I kind of get the idea that Trump gets totally unhinged, and you know, he's probably getting uncontrollable uh, and and mad, as you said. Fine, I, I get this, but he's on his way out. Okay, the military wouldn't have shown up to, uh, I don't know, help him stay in power illegally. The crowds aren't big enough. Why? I mean, why not let it play itself out? Because if Trump leaves, well, play itself out meaning what? This is the, the sort of key to understanding this. What do you do when Trump tells all these crowds to go? Now, who is in charge of that decision? Well, you have the Capitol Hill police and the chief of the Capitol Hill police answers to whom? The sergeant of arms is the name of the guy of the Senate, who is the guy who is overall in control of security on Capitol Hill. And the chief of police of the Capitol Hill police answers to the sergeant of arms. Right. Now, who hires, appoints the sergeant of arms? Who then has the power to fire the sergeant of arms? Who does the sergeant of arms at arms answer to? The majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell. Hmm. Mitch okay. McConnell has to be in on the decision of what to do when these crowds are heading to Congress. Do you set up the security perimeter or not? There's no way. I mean, I can't prove the conversation took place, but how is it possible with such a politicized event where the president is telling people to head to Congress? How is it possible that the guy who represents speaks for the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and the sergeant of arms who commands the chief of police, how is it possible that they don't have a conversation what are we going to do on January 6th? Do we set up the normal course of 
do we set up the security exactly. perimeter? Which is the normal thing you do with yeah. any kind of protest. And and clearly they decided no, let them in. But why? Why would they do that? Do you because, think it's because they wanted to, because if they can blame the shit show on Trump, which is what they did, if they can blame him with insurrection and sedition and everything else, he loses all power in the Republican Party. If he left the way he was leaving, the election's a fraud, and my people, you know, we protested outside Congress, and millions of people support me, and now that I'm leaving, I'm setting up a new television network, and I'm going to make sure every candidate of the Republican Party is picked by me. And you lose, and I actually, I was saying this even before, a couple of weeks before the election in Georgia, I said on camera, I said, you know what, I'll bet Trump wants these guys to lose in Georgia. Because if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, who's the star of the right-wing show? Mm. It's McConnell, majority leader. Not Trump, who's out you know, trying to build some TV network. But if the Democrats control the Senate, I'm sorry, if the Democrats control the Senate, yeah. then Mitch McConnell's a secondary player. And Trump, everything in Trump's strategy is to make everything about Trump. Okay, then just one last question. Again, clarification question. So now, now it's clear to me, obviously. But then, uh, is it like they wanted to make sure that uh, this sentiment, okay, social sentiment, uh, to an extent, massive, obviously, that that Trump managed to, uh, uh, you know, to orchestrate, okay, around him, around his persona, uh, they wanted to make sure that you know him himself, that is Trump and this sentiment uh, which is uh which translated itself into this you know no, uh, no, no, that no, they want to go no 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 this is why i did this whole history thing off the top the roots of this in terms of the modern roots is reaganism this kind of sentiment this weave of racism and anti-government and so on and so on this is the bread and butter of the Republican Party. No, they just need a, they just need a Trump who's not nuts. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. Oh, far from it. They will they will flat, uh, fan the flames of this. This this is the only way they win elections. Oh, no, no, no. I don't think this party is going back to say a, like a Romney or something. Well, no, no, I wasn't I wasn't trying to say that the Republican Party isn't going to be as dangerous as it is. I mean, that wasn't what I had in mind. It, I was just trying to figure out, like, why do they necessarily want Trump out? And in a way that, you know, history well, makes sure that, which, you know, he has no way back into the party or into the which, party. Which thing are you talking about now? The, 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 the Republican leadership or the, yeah. the, the elites? The Republicans, they don't, they, they want a demagogue who doesn't believe he's God. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Okay. They, yeah. they certainly want another Trump type, but they don't want one they lose control of. They controlled Reagan. Reagan was an actor. He was created by a cabal of, in those days, multimillionaires. Today, it would be billionaires. Right. Uh, Trump, Reagan was a front man who they could pull the strings of. They started losing control over Trump because, and this is an important piece of this, Trump wasn't their choice. 
he wasn't the guy they wanted. They wanted uh, Bush's brother. Mm -hmm. They thought they were getting George Bush again in Bush's brother. So uh, are you saying that Trump just uh, flirted with the population in a manner that kind of was endangering the control of the Republican elites, whatever Republican leadership over him as a candidate and afterwards as a president? Is that Yeah, very, very much so. But the, the important piece of this is that the elites are very fractured. Okay. And, and because there is now so much wealth in the hands of billionaires, a few billionaires that are far-right crazies themselves can bring a president to power. And that's exactly what happened, because when Trump wins the Republican nomination, he's out of money. He's faced immediately with enormous scandal. You remember this audio tape of him talking about grabbing women's crotches. And, you know, he was on the way down the toilet. And who rescues him? A guy named Robert Mercer, who's a, a New York hedge fund guy, who owned Breitbart News, the right-wing website, who, who, where, who works? Steve Bannon works there. Kellyanne Conway works there. Uh, Robert Mercer's approach by, uh, I believe it was uh, Ivanka Trump, and he agrees to help bankroll Trump, but more importantly, to bring his uh, apparatchiks, Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, and the, the social media expertise of Cambridge Analytica, because who, who founds Cambridge Analytica? Robert Mercer. Mercer comes in and it helps us make Trump president with the, with the help of the money of Sheldon Adelson, this far right-wing Zionist casino owner who, who is so close to uh, Netanyahu in Israel that they sometimes want to give him a cabinet seat. Uh, they had the 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 this little cabal of far right billionaires is able to give Trump the legs to win. Now the rest of the elites never thought it could happen. To the last minute, they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win that election. They didn't know what Cambridge Analytica and and some of the other social media mechanisms that Mercer and his team had worked out. Just to give you another little piece of Mercer, I mean, it's it's that Robert Mercer, together with a couple of other hedge fund guys, created a thing called uh, Renaissance Technology, which is a quant—it's what they call quantitative high-speed trading uh, fund. Uh, what it means is they they've developed algorithms that can predict the most minute shifts in the stock market either up or down, doesn't matter. And then throw enormous amounts of money at stocks that are going to move a little bit up or go short a little bit down. They went out and hired, I believe the number was 700 of the leading mathematicians and physicists in the world to work on these algorithms. So they had a tremendous uh, strength and ability in data crunching. And they brought that data crunching ability to this to politics through Cambridge Analytica and, and I think a couple of others, and they played a role in Brexit in the United Kingdom as well. That's right. They, they worked how to how to target on social media individuals' profiles and message them based on their own individual interest, but in the millions and millions and millions of people. So it's this yeah. guy. Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, uh, this is a very important topic that I want us to discuss right now. What was the role of the media in all this? Because I'm appalled and horrified by the fact that we all said, oh, it is so good that now Twitter and Facebook finally decided to close down the account of Trump. While I would say, why don't we think it from another perspective? We should be thinking about Facebook and Twitter being held accountable for letting him do all the damage that he did in the first place. But we as a society and you as a society were not able to held these guys accountable. And now we are in the position where we are begging who the owners of the platforms to be behave socially responsible and we are cheering up that they finally closed down the account but let us think about how much money did they make you know during all those time where they profited and they used hatred and hate speech that Donald Trump was fueling and other right-wingers like Ted Cruz and others so I think to be so twisted and sad when we first of all we cheer up that some elite like facebook and twitter owners just uh, fought with another elite crazy right wingers and mainly trump and secondly that we are not able to hold them accountable for the damage that they did in the first place in creating because they are partially responsible for creating trump and using him for gaining a lot of money. Well, it's a complicated problem. But let's let's just go back to something I was talking about at the beginning. Take a look at who owns Facebook and Twitter and and, and these other platforms, but also the media because you have to con- include conventional television, cable television. Um all of these places that are on the stock market the uh, primary ownership are these big asset management companies they're institutionally owned there's some individual billionaires that have significant stakes but almost every one of these including even you know the new york times but including facebook and all the rest of it, there's no doubt zuckerberg has you know enormous amount of shares but the financial institutions are the ones that have the main ownership um the the if you want to solve the problem if you want to jump to what a solution looks like it, the serious serious solution is we it's, it needs to be part of a process of democratization which includes public ownership because as long as you have individuals and financial institutions that own these platforms profit making is the only thing that's going to drive them and if it's profitable to promote Trump or whoever the next Trump is they will do it now it's only now when you know when Trump is mortally wounded oh now let's keep him off uh although twitter was starting to do this a little bit before the election because there's a, there's a, a beef the, the one of the billionaire hedge fund guys who has a big piece of ownership in twitter was already having a, a fight with Trump you could see it through this guy Tucker Carlson show who went after him. but uh, the bottom line here is okay so let's say Facebook some whatever ban this guy 
the billionaires on the right are just going to create a right-wing Facebook or right-wing Twitter. I mean, it's not like these guys aren't going to communicate with each other again. Uh, it's, it, you know, it, it's a large, large of it's for show. Uh, if you would create serious legal liability that publishers have, uh, like if a newspaper publishes something that, that you know, is defamatory, know what they know is defamatory or they know is a lie. There's a responsibility on behalf of the publisher and they can be sued. Um, the law is a little murky when it comes to the social media platforms, whether they actually really have any legal responsibility. Uh, but I, I, you know, so, but the truth is, if you, I mean, I don't get a say, what, what kind of say do I get in this? I think they should be publicly owned. They should be treated like public utilities. There should be, you know, the, the, the management should be like elected. It has to be part of a real process of democratization if you're really going to deal with it. Otherwise, it's a weird conundrum. So in the end, do I think they should ban the guy? I don't know that it accomplishes much of anything, banning him, because like I say, they're, they're going to create a new one. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a bit of a facade. It's hypocritical, as you say. They've been making so much money out of all this crap, and all of a sudden they make a show out of banning him. Uh, it's probably more dangerous that we accept the principle that they can choose what's politically acceptable and what isn't. It's, I, it's, that's probably the more dangerous piece of this. Obviously, it's already against the law to publish hate speech, or especially it's, in the United States, actually, hate speech is not against the law. It is in Canada. But incitement to violence is against the law. Um, so maybe that could be strengthened. I, I'm personally not really against laws on hate speech. Uh, there was a big debate about it in Canada. It, it doesn't get used hardly ever except real hate speech, like outright Nazi kind of rhetoric. Um, maybe there needs to be something like that in the United States. But if you're asking me, is, is the principle that private corporations get to decide what's going to be on social media or not, uh, that principle is, is more important than banning these guys. So, yeah, the, the more dangerous thing here is what's happened to the mainstream media, never mind social media. What's happened to cable TV, there's no journalism left. It's all partisan propaganda, as whether it's pro-Trump or anti-Trump, CNN, MSNBC. Uh, they've given up any pretense of doing journalism. Uh, it's, it's, and well, not I, mean, I don't know who does go to CNN anymore to actually see the news. Well, it's where else? Can if you want actual the ability to have the resources to do uh, relatively, you know, live video news gathering, where else are you going to go? They're the only ones that have the resources, uh, you know, the networks to some extent. Uh, and you have to kind of parse it. Like, you, you, in a sense, you have to just stop listening to the commentators almost completely. Or, I mean, I watch them because I'm just interested in what how the pundits break down because it tells you something about how the elites are thinking about things. Uh, you can't consider it news. But the, the, the lack of, um, like even the fact, like this words they're using, insurrection and sedition now. I mean, uh, how is that an insurrection? A bunch of people, maybe they found, what, six or seven guns, 
one van apparently parked nearby that had more guns and a couple of bombs or something, which is probably one crazy guy. I mean, how is that an insurrection without some involvement of the military, without some involvement, military involvement, the police force? Uh, I mean, just yeah, without uh, a plan and without a viable perspective of actually taking over the building, if not power, right? Well, this well, an insurrection is you're going to take over. You're going to take over the government. I mean, just because you take over a government building doesn't mean you're yeah. taking over government. Yeah. I mean, there's some a, a group of climate activists took over Nancy Pelosi's office uh, at the beginning of the. Uh, early in, what is it, two years ago or something. And, you know, nobody called that an insurrection. I mean, it's it, it, it just being overblown because it serves people's purposes to inflame the importance of what happened because on many sides, now I've talked about the motivation of the Republican leadership, but obviously the Democratic Party leadership wants the same Trump and damage the Republican Party and pro-Trumpers in the Republican Party as much as possible. And they have intimidated some of them, like that senator who lost her seat in Georgia, Lawfer, Lofer, I, I, I'm terrible with names, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, she actually had to back up and not back uh, the decertification, the, the challenge to the certification in Georgia. She had to give back up and not do it because she was so intimidated with this language of sedition and treason and all of this. So everybody's got an angle here to inflame what happened. I'm not saying what happened isn't atrocious. Of course it is. And to have this, you know, gang of odds and ends of people who believe in QAnon and the craziest bloody mm -hmm. theories and live in some, you know, delusional world and can be manipulated. And yeah, you know, five people died. One police officer apparently was beaten badly enough to die. And, you know, it's not like these events weren't serious. And it's not like the people doing it uh, aren't capable of being manipulated and led into doing far worse things. You know, you know there's this guy named Timothy McVeigh a few years ago that blew up an, an, an enormous federal building that killed hundreds of people. I mean, this, this stuff can become really dangerous. I don't want to underestimate that. But what's happening now is every, it's just being inflamed all to hell because finally, especially from the leadership of the Republican Party, finally they get their revenge on this guy that's been humiliating them for four years. Right. Uh, well, I, I just wanted to, uh, to make uh, kind of the same point in a way that, uh, you know, obviously, for example, in Poland, where I'm based, uh, and uh, you know we have a terrible government here and uh, uh the government has taken over the uh public media so-called public media they are now state media government media and they are using it as their own propaganda tool propaganda leverage and it's terrible and you know older people uh <clears throat> you know that had their adult lives uh in uh, uh before 1989 would tell you today that it's much worse than it even used to be before 1989 because back then the leaders uh, <clears throat> of the party, they at least, you know, they kind of uh, respected the people, okay, in a way that they thought they are talking or they're doing propaganda to intelligent people, okay, thinking people, whereas those now aren't doing even that. So, uh, I, and I'm saying this because obviously, you know, when I want to get some news, then I have to go to the public TV just to see what's going on there, right? Uh, in a way, what's going on the ground, like what's what facts are reported, what what, what is happening, okay? 
Uh, and, uh, and, you know, obviously you have to go to these channels, I don't know, big media and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, who, I don't think many people really take it seriously. In a way, uh, most people, I don't know what it's like in America, but I assume it's pretty much the same as in Europe and it's pretty equal in Eastern and Western Europe. People just don't believe anything that is in the media. Like, you know, they consume this information, sometimes they use it in some discussions, but generally, you know, uh, you said in America, journalism ceased to exist, basically. No one even pretends that they do journalism anymore. And it's pretty much the same all over the the so-called global north, I think, Uh, or at least in Europe and and America. And uh, uh, so, so, you know, this, the thing is that obviously the media did play a very important role here because they were fueling this. They were, you know, adding gasoline to the fire and sort of, uh, you know, propping up this conspiracy theory. Actually, one conspiracy theory after another. I mean, this is the most fashionable thing to do now in the mainstream media, obviously, just to, you know, throw around uh, conspiratorial, uh, you know, ideas. Uh, b- because, you know, the fact that for the, the idea that, Trump actually won the elections and they were stolen from him and so on and so forth. This was the kind of conspiracy theory that, uh, you know, part of the media, those that supported Trump, uh, they kind of, uh, you know, they went on board with it, right? And uh, if it was obvious that at one point it could, you know, end in the manner that it did on the 6th of January, okay? And as much as it was pathetic, and you said it yourself, it could have also been dangerous, or it could be dangerous in the future. Uh, and uh, but you know, also about the social media, the thing you know, banning of Trump, well, I think is very important for for everyone here to actually you know consume this. Uh, that what you said, I think, is very important. That it wasn't really. Uh, any decision on the part of the i don't know the board or whatever the executive committee of uh, of uh twitter to uh you know take down his account or some of his uh his tweets i mean trump's tweets or trump's account because they thought that it's actually you know ethically not okay or but, but it's actually what is behind it is some kind of corporate intrigue oligarchic intrigue okay going on in the background that just manifests itself that way. And then of course, you know, we're, uh, we're kind of explained as, you know, as the population, uh, we're explained that, oh, it's because Trump's inciting violence or something like that. You know, I've seen the two tweets, okay, that were taken down right before his account was totally erased, uh, apparently. And they weren't anything untypical. They weren't anything, I- I've seen worse from Trump, okay, on his account. In the past four uh, or five years, so for me it wasn't anything particularly uh, how to say this anything particularly decisive in a way that that wasn't something so bad that it would uh, be something like uh, oh now we have to really take it down. But on the uh, and, and also the other element is that you know these are private corporations and here's the president of the uh, of the state. I mean this is the you know the highest ranking top bureaucrat. Okay, because the uh, he's the highest ranking politician in the state. And, 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 you know, whether he can communicate via social networks or not, it doesn't depend in any way on anyone, just on, you know, some people in, uh, you know, that are part of the, of the Twitter team, whatever. Uh, so I think this is all, all, all very, 
I agree that it's complicated, but it's also dangerous in a way that on the, you know, we have this uh, technological giants, okay, that can take away president's account uh, and uh, without any consequences, really. I mean, nothing can be done about this. Uh, and on the other hand, this constant, you know, uh, constant uh, pushing or aggressive pushing of all kinds of propaganda in a way that the enemy is right here, right behind the corner, and they are very dangerous. And by pointing their finger, they are pointing at the other media that are part of the propaganda machine of the other party. Uh, so this is like a, a kind of conflict that I do not see how it can end up in any other way than further lumpenization of the society in a way that people fall into you know they, they trust less and less the information that appears and they trust more and more all kinds of conspiratorial ideas that just appear here and there because there's nothing to to you know to counteract against uh this this process okay of rottening of the media do you agree with this yeah i do um let me just add to it the, the number one thing you're hearing from the, uh, the pundits that represent the authorities, the elites, uh, is how are we going to restore people's faith in the electoral process, in democracy, in government, but particularly in democracy and elections? See, there's a very important trade-off that takes place in the United States, and not only the U.S., but the trade-off is this. Yeah, maybe it's true that in the Soviet Union, they had full employment. Maybe they had health care. You know, maybe people didn't live that well, but, you know, maybe they didn't face such profound economic insecurity and so on and so on. But we Americans, we get the right to vote. We have free speech. We have freedom to choose. And as long as we have that, I guess you can live with the fact that one tenth of one percent of the population owns more than what is it, the, the rest of the 50, 60 percent of the population. The massive concentration of wealth is justified because it, the, supposedly it's a democracy. So if people lose faith in the electoral process and lose faith that it's a democracy, Maybe they're also going to really start to question uh, who the hell owns stuff and who wields real power. Now, of course, the right-wing movement doesn't do that. The right-wing movement covers up the role of the big corporations. Although I got to say, when you watch Fox News now and people like Tucker Carlson, they're actually starting to use anti-corporate rhetoric because the right needs to... The elites need to control this conversation so it doesn't end up pointed in real terms at that 1%, the ownership class. So the, the, the problem facing them is that if, you know, what is it, 74 million people voted for Trump, 75 million, and they're saying, what is it, two-thirds or something of those people think the elections were rigged that's threatening to the process itself and uh, and you combine that with on the on the more left of the spectrum 
uh, people believing that all the progressive motion that was behind Bernie Sanders is now being essentially left out of Joe Biden's calculations or, or, or diminished or marginalized. It's a very dangerous brew here for the elites. So yeah, the media is trying to put the genie back in the bottle here and control the conversation. Um, but the, the they're, they're facing something which is making it almost uncontrollable. And that's the COVID pandemic. I mean, the real crime of Trump yeah. is, is what, what is Yeah, COVID. this is the last topic of our show. And I so, was just wanted to get you to tell us how is the pandemic playing off? Because all this crazy show just took place in the middle of a deadly, deadly pandemic. And here in Romania, everybody says, well, the Chinese are just lying. I'm sure that they are sure that dozens of millions of people are dying in China and the government is just covering it up. Okay, just to somehow preserve the idea that the U.S. is superior because we have so self-colonized intellectual elites here, that the U.S. is superior and to somehow say, look, the pandemic in the U.S. is greatly managed and uh, the Chinese are lying. This is the basically the mainstream uh, media and mainstream intellectuals narrative. So what's your take on that? Well, I, uh, there's no reason to believe the Chinese are lying. I mean, there'd be, there's too many Western doctors and scientists and journalists and everybody crawling all over China. I mean, if that was the case, that would come out. I think it's silly. Uh, but the fact that people believe it, it's part of what's driving these right-wing forces all over the world is that there's, the, you know, science and evidence don't seem to matter very much. Uh, but what's the real threat of the pandemic in the United States is that there looks like there's going to be no way to uh, control it without much more profound lockdowns and closing down sections of the economy again, which is going to throw things back into deeper recession, higher unemployment. And, you know, I was talking earlier about sections of the working class because of globalization that had lost their sort of status and privilege. It, this is there's sections of the working class now being thrown into abject poverty that never believed they would ever face such a thing. That's that's a time bomb, political time bomb. And the vaccine, the distribution of the vaccinations in the United States is a disaster. It's chaos. Uh, what was it? They thought they would have 20 million people vaccinated by the end of December and it was 2 million. It continues to be completely chaotic. Uh, the it's raging out of control uh, so that the, the the elites are in a situation where they, they really don't know what to do They're, they again they needed to sink Trump because it helps calm the waters some at least on that side of things uh, they needed to legitimize the Biden presidency uh, Biden is going to have to take some measures that are going to be very strong if they're going to control the virus. So anything they can do to legitimatize the presidency, and, and, and it is, I mean, he won the election. He doesn't, like, it needs legitimatization within the framework of American politics. There's no question he won. But they needed to assert that. It was important to the elites. 
that McConnell and Pence and Graham, these three pro-Trump senators, it was very important that they broke ranks with Trump to the elites. I think there's a very important piece of this, which needs to be talked about. Within hours, practically, of the events on January 6th, the American Manufacturers Association, which is one of the most powerful lobbying groups on behalf of corporate America, called for Pence to use the 25th Amendment to remove Trump as president. Now, this is the same American Manufacturers Association that's been pro-Trump for four years. But Trump had lost, had outlived his usefulness. The chaos is not good. I interviewed, there's an economist named Mark, named Mark Blythe. He calls it the investor's paradise. The, the chaos was threatening the investor's paradise. They needed to calm things down. And Trump's, in Trump's own narcissistic, megalomaniacal interest, chaos was good. In fact, if you remember when he first got elected, Steve Bannon, who was you know, his, one of his closest advisors, was openly calling for the destruction of the administrative state. You know, the destruction of the government as we knew it, it, which included the destruction of the Republican Party, it was their public agenda. But the elites went along with all that. Because as I said earlier, they got everything they want on the economic side. But by, the, by January 6th, Trump had completely outlived his usefulness. They needed to get rid of him. And the elites wanted the transition to Biden so they could go back to, quote unquote, normal. What's normal? Normal is the process that gave us such gross inequality. Normal is the process of the less one-tenth of one percent concentrating so much wealth and power in their hands. Normal is the process that gave birth to Donald Trump, which means in 2024, if Biden goes back to normal, I don't think it's going to be Trump. I think they in all likelihood have mortally wounded this guy. But it doesn't matter. They'll find a new, less crazy Trump. So the real issue now comes down to, can the progressive forces, can there be a mass movement? Can there be a people's broad front? Can real pressure be, be asserted on this new Biden administration to get some kind of reforms, some kind of dealing with inequality, uh, and most importantly, climate? Uh, if, if, if that doesn't happen, then 2024 yeah. ain't looking good. Right, right. And I also want to ask this, if, if this doesn't happen, if there's no major reform, uh, if there's no, uh, no steps are taken in order to improve the situation in general for, you know, for the poorest, for the most disenfranchised and so on and so forth, then, you know, the other question appears, how is the American system, uh, brutal and barbaric as it is, you know, still, how is it going to contain this? I mean, this growing disenfranchising, this growing frustration, growing, you know, violence. And, you know, uh, when you read about uh, America Today, I don't know, you can take the book, for example, by Chris Hedges. I read it like a month or two months ago, uh, America, the Farewell Tour. You know, you read this book and you go and it, it's striking how, uh, you know, violent American society is or has become. Okay. No, no, that's not right. Has always been. Oh, okay. Has always been. All right. No, no, that was very important. It isn't has it become. 
has always been. Okay, has always been. That's that, that, that's fine. Okay, I'm just talking about my impressions upon reading the book. Like I'm not, you know, an expert in uh, American sociology, so that's why that's my mistake. Uh, but uh, w w what I want to say is that okay, how like if this doesn't happen, what you said that some reforms, some basic at least reforms are needed, then how are they going to contain this through uh, contain this through repression? I mean, are you? No, I think they contain it through. Uh, short-term measures. See, the, the thing is this. Uh, the Brookings Institute did a study on how much wealth is in private hands in the United States. It means actual assets after liabilities. It's something like $98 trillion are in private hands. That's an enormous amount of money. That gives a power to the United States to create money through the Fed and the Treasury. Yeah. Like they just, what did they just, they came up with a stimulus package of what it was like three trillion. They're talking about another two trillion. They can come up with trillions to quell the fires without doing any systemic reform. Mm -hmm. So that's what they do. They have a combination, sure, of policing, but more importantly, and this is part of the difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. The Republicans lean more towards more repression, but if they're not against stimulus when they have to. And the Democrats would lean more towards stimulus, not no repression by any means, but a little less reliance on repression. So what, what the most likelihood, especially now that the Democrats control the Senate, more or less, I say more or less because some of the Democratic senators are as right wing as some of the Republicans. But they will come in with some big stimulus package. Uh, you know, two trillion, three trillion. People will start getting probably 600 bucks a week again. They'll ride out the COVID problem in, in some way or another. It's almost going to be like a, a lever. If they start seeing social unrest rising, they'll throw more money at it. They have the capacity to throw a lot of money at the domestic situation if they think it's getting too radicalized. Oh, okay, okay, I get this. But, you know, by just throwing money money at the problem, you don't normally solve it, or at least don't solve it in a longer perspective. And what I'm trying to say is that my, you know, my impression is from the news and the opinions that I read about, uh, you know, the state of the American society is that there is not only poverty and inequality, but there's this bleeding wound, like everybody's so frustrated, so aggressive, so, uh, you know, well, violent, okay? Uh, and Nothing new. It's been that so, way. It's been that way since the American Civil War. Uh huh. Okay. It's so it's the same anger that elected Robert, uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980. I mean, there's nothing new here except that this is the new globalization has weakened and, to some extent, impoverished, lowered the standard of living of sections of the working class. Mm -hmm. Say so that's the thing that's new. American workers are weaker and poorer. Than they used to be but so far the radicalization that's taking place is more on the right than it is on the left and i don't know if that starts to change or not because that's the key to the whole thing mm -hmm. but you've got to ask the question is global capitalism sustainable well maybe not in the long run but boy ain't going away tomorrow and global capitalism depends on american capitalism 
You know, all this talk about losing faith in the U.S. dollar, except every time there's a crisis, what, is, what does everyone in the world do? They buy U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, China has, you know, how many trillion U.S. dollars? I mean, global capitalism cannot afford to, for, to have such an American decline. The entire global military industrial complex, including, may I add, the military industrial complex of Russia and China, mm -hmm. need the American military industrial complex to help fuel militarization. And the Russian military industrial complex isn't going to be able to get their cut of the budget if the Americans aren't big. The China, do you know, I think it's five of the, lar of the 15 largest manufacturers of arms in the world now are Chinese. There's so much money being made out of arms manufacturing. Like global capitalism can't let American capitalism fall. And I got to tell you, I don't think it's anywhere near falling anyway. And these wounds people talk about, it's, it's you know, it's, you know, Gore Vidal had this phrase called the United States of Amnesia. There's nothing new. It's just a little more, we're in a very intense period right now. Mm -hmm. But th this, these wounds, it's all, honestly, it all comes back down to the economics of the situation. It's going to be, uh, if there is a return in any way to the measures of austerity in the United States, uh, while this pandemic slash depression continues, then watch out. And I, the problem is, I don't know if, if the watch out is going to be on the right or the left or both, uh, but the, uh, some kind of spontaneous rise in a real mass movement, you know, I think will come. Uh, but as I say, they've got a lot of money to throw at this. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Right, right. And so the very last question here, because you mentioned the question of the left and whether some popular populist left-wing movement is possible, uh, you know, I mean, it's rise in the foreseeable future, then, okay, I, I kind of, I think this prediction that you made sounds very rational in a way that, okay, of course, like sooner or later, it might just happen because of, uh, you know, the popularity of austerity measures and... Uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of the repression that they could use against the people uh, and th that there could be urban unrest, that there could be social unrest, that there could be some perhaps movement. <clears throat> uh, but then is there, do you see any factors on the American left? And I'm not talking about the Democratic Party. I'm talking about, you know, left, left, social democratic at least, or, I don't know, socialist, communist, whatever. Uh, is is Are there any factors, serious, viable factors that are prepared to intervene Okay, in in a situation like this, where uh, a spontaneous movement of protest against the you know barbarity of American capitalism uh, starts, is this well, what gives you hope? Well, not my hope. Okay. What I mean by that is protest is not enough. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm asking about like a political formation that could, you know. Well, uh, well right now the only game, the only, in my opinion, the only game in town that has clout at the national level is the progressives that have got elected at the Democratic Party. You know, whether it's a Bernie Sanders or AOC, the Squad, the, you know, those types. Uh, that has because they have a platform, I can't say they have power, although in the new House of Representatives, because the Democrats have a narrower majority, 
the progressive group has a little more strength than they might have otherwise. Um, outside the Democratic Party, there's lots of groups and formations, and you know the Democratic Socialists of America, one of the larger ones, but it's quite amorphous. Uh, from what I understand, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but from what I get, on a state level, city level, really not even regional, maybe a little bit, uh, you have lots of organizing taking place. Uh, you have groups that at, at, at city levels can mobilize some people. You can get people elected. In New York State, they've elected a lot of progressives to the New York State Assembly. Um, uh, but uh, unfortunately, the... Uh, oh, I can see my camera just dumped out for some reason. Uh, oh, there I am. Okay. Uh, the the but the majority uh, I don't know if it's majority but almost majority of state legislatures are still Republican. Anyway, the answer is there's a crying need for a really organized national body that can help develop a broad front of people, organizations that fights for democracy, for action on climate, for against fascization. But it's still very disparate. You know, you can get people together, groups and stuff, for a big protest someday. You know, like even a million people maybe show up on, you know, what was it, against the Iraq war? Right after Trump's presidency, there was some big, big protests. But they don't, they're not sustained. And, and, and this division between activists electorally and activists that are, you know, kind of don't see electoral politics as very viable, I would like to say one thing, because uh, there's a lot of this discussion argument going on right now. I don't think the Democratic Party is the enemy any more than I think the Republican Party is the enemy. Any more than I actually think Trump is the enemy or Biden is the enemy. But you get a lot of politics framed that way. If you want an enemy, the enemy is a system of ownership that concentrates so much wealth and power in so few hands. That's the enemy. And the political parties that front for them are part of the problem. But the more you can infiltrate them, particularly the Democratic Party, because it's more possible right now, the more you can get some kind of progressive uh, clout in there, because at the national level, a third party just can't get traction. It's just structural. There is possibilities for third parties at state levels and certainly at city levels. At the national level, it's practically impossible. Uh, but I, my opinion is we, we need a broad, broad front that can support any candidate it deems worthy, may run its own candidates at certain times. Uh, but to do that, uh, we... Well, I'm a dual citizen, so I can say we Canada and we United States. Um, we we need to overcome sectarianism and, and the competition on the left. Yeah, You know, there's got to be a way to disagree about tactics. Oh, yes. Calling each other names without saying, oh, you're a sellout because you don't agree with such and such tactics. That's right. That's right. I totally, totally agree with you. I This is something. Some people are calling AOC, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of the squad. They're calling them sellouts. 
you can disagree on a tactic in Congress yeah. without being a sellout. And, just, and, and when you're in Congress dealing with the real need of how to operate in that environment, honestly, I, I don't know what the right tactic is. I've never had to do it. Uh, but I also don't, I have no problem with people advocating a certain tactic. Maybe they're right. But stop the name calling. Stop yeah. calling individuals and demeaning them and, and making yourself out to be the most revolutionary person on the planet. Uh, you know, you can't build unity that way. And I'm not saying unity at any price. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you don't, it, what, you're not going to have unity with people who don't want to have effective climate policy. Uh, let me take that back. On certain issues, you might. Because you might find that if, if if this next administration wants to start something aggressive, I don't know, with Iran or something else, I, it looks like they're going to be rational on Iran. You could find on a specific issue of war and peace, libertarians who don't even believe humans cause climate change. You might be able to get together with them on a specific thing about opposing war or something. Yeah, on a solution, right? Not necessarily on a problem, but on a solution. Yeah, yeah but generally speaking, I'm not saying unity any price there are going to be arguments uh, you know about what's the right way to go and this and that but if we can't figure out how to develop unity and stop calling name and stop the name calling uh then uh, we're doomed as the, yeah. honestly yeah you're totally right and this is like this is this is a topic for an entire uh conversation or a series of conversations okay about the kind of uh let's say, political culture problem that we have on the left. And obviously, it's present in America because I kind of recognize pretty much every symptom that you described, you know, is, is also part of my observations here in Eastern and Western Europe and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot for this, um, you know, very exhaustive uh, conversation, all the information and, and all your comments. I think it was, uh, it was really fantastic. And... Uh, I, I see many, many comments, okay? We're not able to tackle them. Uh, I'm talking about the social media, <clears throat> uh, our social media appearance. Uh, and uh, Maria, back to you. Well, thank you very much. I also want to a quick answer to Teodorescu Valeria, who said that Facebook is going to be owned by the state and then it's gonna turn into some sort of authoritarian channel but I think it should be owned by the public. And we had here in Romania that a specific text that was designed to finance the public uh, media channel, the Romanian national television. So we had that. Then the government changed the way it is financed. So we have pretty good um, uh, ways of doing that, like the BBC is publicly owned. So it's not like we are inventing the wheel here. It's something that is pretty common and uh, pretty successful. And apart from that, of course, a lot of comments, we are not able to take them. Now, if uh, Paul has something to say, maybe he wanted to say something that uh, was important and we did not ask that specific question, if you have something to add. Oh, that's very dangerous. I always have something <laughs> to add. You're gonna wanna shut me up. Uh, it's, no, I mean, uh, just I guess just quickly on the last thing you said, this is going to be the great challenge of humans if we ever get to take up this challenge. How do you have public ownership and democratization? 
because concentration of ownership in a few hands, as you know well in Eastern Europe, even better than we do, can be also just as dangerous if the public, if the state ownership is concentrated in a tiny handful of hands. You know, a single party concentration of political power, yeah, public ownership can be dangerous. So we need public ownership with real democratization. And just if I have anything to add, it's this. Artificial intelligence can either be the greatest thing that ever happened to humanity, which will include the means for democratization, because you can have participation electronically and otherwise in a ways unheard of before. Or AI is going to wind up being the most dangerous thing that ever happened to humanity, which includes the elimination of millions and millions of jobs. And some very credible scientists even think someday AI doesn't need humans anymore. Although my, my mind's always been that if the elites are the ones that develop AI and get rid of workers, I'm rooting for the robots. <laughs> uh, Anyway, let that be my, my <laughs> Okay, thank you so much. Thank you both of, both of you for your comments and the information and analysis that you provided. I'm sorry that the internet connection was not so good all the time. These things happen, so I have to apologize to you and to our viewers and hope to see you on our show again, Paul. Thank you very much for being here with us tonight. Sure, I'd be happy to anytime. Okay, thank you. Bye.